All right, good evening, River House. Let's get on our feet. Stand as we read God's Word. I'm going to read a bit of a lengthy passage out of 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. This is Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he can nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask, God, that you will continue to bless us with your glorious presence in this place. We honor what you are doing here tonight. God, we are honored that you would choose to lavish us with such grace as you have tonight. And we continue to posture our hearts in worship. God, we worship you with our attention. We give you our ears, we give you our presence, we give you our hearts, and we ask that you would speak to us, and that your word would go deep into our hearts tonight, we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen, amen. Well, I've had a bunch of different streams of thought bouncing in my head as far as what to share tonight, and I think I'll start with this and then just hope the Lord's gracious to me and lets me articulate this all. 
Uh, I was at a prayer retreat in the mountains, I think it was 2011. It was a small group of us that went up to this guided prayer retreat. And the first night we, we arrived in the dark, so I wasn't familiar with the the location or the retreat center. I'd never been there before. And uh, we were there in the night and we had kind of an evening session. And then I believe it was, they called us to like silence. We did a silence retreat for maybe 12 or 24 hours. I can't remember. Um, but I woke up the next morning. I felt prompted by the Lord to wake up early the next morning. I think I got up somewhere around 4 a.m. It was pitch black. And I just felt prompted by the Lord to go and just find a, a mountain nearby and climb it. And uh, that's not something I do all the time, but it is something that uh, the Lord's met me in potent ways on mountaintops. I think there's something of clarity that takes place. And I love mirroring the spiritual with the physical and grounding prayer and the physicality of the creation. There's something about God meets us in the creation, right? He sent Israel to the wilderness, the physical wilderness, because there's something about location that changes sometimes our internal environment. But anyways, so I woke up 4 a.m., I'm trying to make sense of even where the closest mountain is because it's dark. I can hardly see anything, and it was a really dark night. But I kind of started making the shape of this, you know, hill, mountain. I couldn't really tell what it was, and I just started climbing it. The wee hours of the night, and I'm climbing this uh, hillside. It probably took me, I, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate, maybe 60 to 90 minutes. And as I'm doing this, it's getting slowly lighter and lighter as the dawn's approaching. And eventually, as I'm just sweat now dripping down my brows and... It's still not even close to sunrise. I kind of look up and I get a glance of the brow of the hill ahead and I see this cross. And I'm like, wow, I picked the right mountain this morning. And my, something in my heart leapt. And it's hard to articulate, but you know, I think we've all had these moments where it's you know, with God that are hard to articulate. But I found myself suddenly just almost getting emotional at the thought of this cross. I climb the rest of the way. I get to this cross and I just, I just cling to the cross and I just start sobbing at this cross and I'm holding it and I don't even really know what's happening other than I'm communing with God in this moment and I'm there I don't know for how long maybe five ten minutes I have uh, this moment I'm experiencing God's presence this adoration devotions coming out of me and it still wasn't even close to the sunrise and I'm here at this cross and I'm crying and something in me was just kind of like it came to a close and I was like, well, I'm not even at the top of the mountain yet. Like, I'm going to keep pressing on. So I just kind of got back on my feet, and I started climbing back up the mountain with some sort of anticipation of meeting God at the top of the mountain. And it was as if every step that I went further for the next 15, 20, 30 minutes, more and more my heart just started becoming desolate. Like, where are you? I was so close to you, and now you're not there. Until finally I heard the Lord just say, stop and go back to the cross. And it, it sounds so simple, but it cut me in a way. And I, I literally returned, returned, went back to the cross and uh, continued my time of fellowship with the Lord that morning until I had to get back down for the, the retreat starting. And it, it wasn't necessarily a profound experience for me, but it was something that the Holy Spirit rekindled, reminded me as I was even preparing for what you know, asking, what would I want to share with you tonight? What do I think that the heart of God wants to communicate? And I, I, I think he wants to call us to the cross. But I believe that th this story, in some ways, it, it's a prophetic picture of what happens to uh, a lot of us, not just around the cross of Jesus Christ, but I think anything as it pertains to relationship with God is that 
it usually starts in a very simplistic way. And then somehow we tend to complicate it. Because when we're living in a simplistic understanding, we don't necessarily have comprehension of something. Right? We get saved by the cross of Jesus. How many of you were saved in this room? Wasn't that a beautiful moment? You didn't choose him, he chose you. You get saved. And we know it's because of the cross. We know it's because Jesus loves us. Like we have somewhat of a, super comf- uh, a superficial comprehension of that, but it's simplistic. And then as we start to go in our walk, somehow what was once really clear and simple to us starts to become more complex and burdensome in a way and even complicated, rigorous. And we tend to kind of work ourselves into this whole Christianity thing that's all about grace. And then I think God, in the deeper work of maturity, as he returns us not back to simplistic thinking, but to a place of simplicity where we have both comprehension because we've wrestled through complexities, but we've arrived back at a place of simplicity. I think what could capture this for you really clearly is, is anybody familiar with the theologian Karl Barth? Oh my goodness, come on, is anybody? I gotta get like, I gotta get some hands in here. He's one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. He wrote, uh, perhaps a lot of people would still say the greatest uh, systematic, systematic theology in the history of Christianity, volumes upon volumes, is absolutely massive work. He gave his life to studying the scriptures and bringing forth this theological understanding of the church and who God is and all, all, all of it. And towards the end of his life, somebody asked him, you know, Carl, what does the Bible say? And his answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you see how that means something more coming from a man like him that lived the life that he did than it would maybe me when I was 16 saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's a greater depth to his profession of a statement like that because he had wrestled with the tension and the complexity of things and he had arrived, matured really, back into childlikeness. We don't want to be childish. We want to be childlike. Okay. I have wrestled with... I'm just going to bring you into a little bit of the context of what is sourcing this message because I think it will help you understand what I believe the Lord wants to communicate tonight. I, I believe that every minister, every preacher is called not so much just to give words to people, but to be an intimate with the Lord who's experienced transformative power meaning that the Christian minister, and I don't just mean the vocational minister, like myself as a pastor, but I mean the Christian minister, those that have been called to be with the Lord and then be used by the Lord to bring his kingdom to the earth. Ministry flows from the power of a transformed life. It's not just words. It has to be incarnational for it to truly become powerful upon the world around us. But this is the thing that has been somewhat perplexing to me, to myself personally, as just a minister, and then also engaging in the wider church, is that there are so many different messages that are preached about 
the transformation of the scripture of, of the Christian. You know, you talk to different people and different streams in the church, and you'll often hear a different form of what it means to be Christian. So if you were in, you know, the like an IHOP, you're going to be discipled into this whole ethos that Mike Bickle has created with a whole bunch of other people from the power of what God did in his life, right? If you were to go and be with, uh, you know, like a John Mark Comer stream, right? John Mark Comer's had his life profoundly transformed by God, and he has this whole ethos that's been created, this whole form of what's come forth from that. If you were to spend time in Mozambique with Heidi and Roland Baker, they have this powerful transformative grace that's doing this move, but it's a different form. There's all these different forms of what it means. And sometimes, just being honest, I can get confused and it feels complex when I'll do weird things like read books from different streams, different preachers of different streams. I'll read them at the same time and it just like baffles me sometimes because I'm like, this is all so powerful and so contradictory <laughs> to each other. Like earlier this year, I was reading a book and I was bouncing back chapter to chapter. I was reading a John Mark Comer book and a Michael Culianos book. And I was like, I don't even know what to do right now. <laughs> like, this is like, whoa, this is so different and so powerful and doing something different in me. That's like a microcosm of what I think so many of us in the church are dealing with, particularly in an information age where we have access to basically every sermon ever preached in every church and every city of every nation on planet earth right now, if you really wanted to, you could listen and there's content and content and content and content and content. And if we're not really grounded and I think rooted in a sense of what, like what is the heart? Because I don't want to disciple you and I don't want to be discipled into an external form. What I long for and where my heart's, I've just been wrestling. This is months of wrestling with the Lord. And I came to this place where I was like, God, what I want more than anything for this community is, yes, this community will have a form that is distinct, right? We all have the external form, things that God calls us to. Like Mother Teresa's form, what God called her to do is probably different than what he's going to call a lot of us here. Unless he tells you to go to Calcutta and sit with the poor. That would be a similar form, right? But, but the heart, there has to be something deeper that's a common thread. There, and, and what I'm longing, this has been my prayer, is God, I want you to disciple me and disciple this community into what is true Christian power. Not, not just form, but the power that can transform a life. And I want to root and ground this community through the effect of my leadership, which is just a portion. You know, the Lord is leading. I just have a role and a portion, but I want to be in sync with the Lord so that wherever his power is, we are rooted and grounded. It's like we, we build our house right on top of it. If there's an oil reserve of the power of God, I want to be right squarely rooted on top of it, and I don't want us to drift. I don't want to waver. I, I want true Christian power. And I think when we often are conceptualizing in our minds the power of God, I think a lot of images can come to my mind. People 
falling down, getting slain in the spirit, you know, miracles or, you know, addictions breaking or the transformation of relationships that shouldn't be transformed. Like we, right, we have all these, again, they're forms, they're external things that point and show us that there's something powerful at work, but what is the depth of that power? What is the source of that power? Where, how can we articulate and come to a place of comprehension as a community so that we can build our lives on the source of that power and not drift into the expressions of it and try to create religious creeds or codes or behaviors around form, but actually come to what is the substance of it, God? For the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. I have this conviction in me that like that story I shared, it's really easy to be Christians who kind of move past the cross to try to ascend to some other ethereal heights. And I just feel this wooing of the Lord tonight that would you come back to the cross? Would you come back to the simplicity and the power of the cross? Because the cross according to the word of God, it is the power of God. It is that which has the power to transform our nature. And it's the cross alone. At the heart of Christianity is the cross. If you ask anybody across the world what the symbol of Christianity is, they'd tell you the cross. If you look at every cathedral across the world, you see the cross. The cross, the cross is central, it's foundational, it's the very, it's woven into the fabric of Christianity. I believe the cross is actually woven into the fabric of the universe itself. And I don't say that in an ethereal, new agey type of a way, but in the sense that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. There's something about the death and resurrection of Jesus that is at the very epicenter of what the created cosmos is, which you and I are a part of. The cross, the beautiful, glorious, rugged, awful, awesome, terrible cross. A Christian without a cross makes no sense. That's why Jesus says, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me if you want to be my disciple. The cross. We have a skewed version or vision or understanding of the cross. We've heard the teachings on the dark night of the soul. Nobody really wants to hear that teaching unless you're in your dark night of the soul. You're like, can we talk about something else? 
I was in a meeting one time. It was a church planning meeting, different church. And the pastor said, I think I'm going to start preaching out of Lamentations. And I kid you not, the whole room started laughing. And he was dead serious. And I got offended. I was like, what's wrong with you? Come on. You don't want the real thing? Right? Nobody really likes that teaching. But I'm not really talking about the dark night of the soul as much as the daily cross and learning to recognize that the cross is there every day of our lives. I was, the first time I, I went to Maui, was like five or six years ago, my dad took me and my brothers and it was super fun. Riley was about to get engaged and so it was like the last boys trip before one crossed over to the dark side. And <laughs> so that was my first time there and we decided to go to the top of the Haleakala Mountain. Anybody's been there, you know? I was thinking Hawaii's warm. We got up there and it was, it was the coldest morning of my entire life. I actually went to a bathroom that smelled horrible because it was about four degrees warmer because I just couldn't stand out there. It was so cold. Anyways, we're driving up the, in, the, in, the, in the twilight in the early morning and someone says, hey, look, you can look out the right windows and you can see the Southern Cross. And I was looking out at this beautiful night sky with all the constellations and the stars were just glorious. But in the center was just the Southern Cross. I could see it so clear. And I just thought in that moment, what a picture. Like, what a picture. That as God has promised us his very glory, we have to understand that at the center of that is the cross. That the stars and the brilliance and the beauty of God, the cross is woven into the very fabric of his old understanding of his plans and his purposes for our lives. I think that Christians complain about their cross more than anything. We complain. When the cross is given to us because we don't have the maturity yet to recognize and see what God would be doing in giving us the cross, we complain. We complain and we complain and we complain and we complain. And in complaining, we're kicking against the goads. We're actually delaying the beautiful, glorious work that God wants to do in our lives because we don't yet come to trust and know what the cross is and who God is and the way that he works in our lives, right? When Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was walking on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus came to him, shone like a glorious light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then told him to stop kicking against the goads. What does that mean? It was like a thorn bush, a goad, and that's a euphemism of why would you kick against a thorny, painful thing? You're, you're resisting this, and you're actually producing more pain for yourself in the process. Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you resisting the cross? Why are you complaining about the power of God in your life? Why are you complaining about the very thing that has the power to transform you into the very image of Jesus Christ himself? The cross. We read 2 Corinthians all the time, chapter 3, that we'd be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the face of God. But we don't recognize when we're reading that and say, glory to glory, that as we behold the face of the Holy One, there is a cross as we look into the glory of God, there is a cross. And the cross is the power that transforms and liberates us from the inside out. But we don't recognize this. Now let me give you a couple stories, maybe just one, that I think articulates how we can, we can miss this 
Uh, the story of, of Joseph is a story that uh, we love to read about, but we probably wouldn't like to live for the most part because it was a pretty tumultuous story. Right? And that story started with the vision of the stars, literally, for the 17-year-old Joseph who was the favored son in a very dysfunctional family. Anybody from dysfunctional family? Come on. Welcome to that human club. So Joseph, Joseph is uh, favored in a way that provokes jealousy by his siblings. God then gives him a dream of the 12 stars, the 12 heaps of wheat, and they're bowing down to him. He interprets it in a very self-righteous way, which is probably common with the 17-year-old mind. We don't have the maturity yet to see God speaking a generational promise to him, but God doesn't wait till we're sanctified to speak to us, thank God, to call us, to choose us, to anoint us, to give us his promises. So Joseph gets this beautiful promise, he interprets it in what we would say would be a, a fleshly way and kind of starts telling all his brothers about it, provokes their jealousy. We know the story, they reject him, they betray him, they sell him into slavery. Do you think Joseph would have accepted the promise if he knew there was a cross with it? Because God wasn't surprised. Psalms 105 says that God sent Joseph to Israel, to Egypt. God sent Israel to Egypt. How did God send Joseph to Egypt? Right? Through the dysfunction of his family playing out. God sent Joseph to Egypt, a painful rejection, sent Joseph into the land where his promise would be fulfilled. What do you think your rejection's accomplishing? So Joseph gets rejected. He then goes, he begins working in Potiphar's house. We get insight into his character that he had not turned bitter to the Lord by the way that he upheld righteousness, even when tempted, in a way that many people would have probably uh, slid on the gray scale and justified in some way. And he uh, resists temptation. And then he gets accused and slandered and falsely uh, uh, imprisoned. Do you think that Joseph knew the cross when he was given that promise. Why me, God? Why you've turned your back on me? You've, all right, just think of all the justifications. Just think of where your mind would go. Not only did I choose to keep worshiping you as my family's rejected me, now as I stood in righteousness and said, no, you don't promote me, but you send me into an Egyptian prison hole. But God needed Joseph close to the palace. Because in the midst of the stars, there's always a cross. And Joseph submits to that process. Um, he is favored in the prison. There's this beautiful little story, if you read, when the, the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh come. Have you read this before? 
And Joseph is gifted by God. He is favored by God, which would be, again, that he is submitted to the the leadership of God in this. And this story, I actually think, exposes the, the power of what God does in us through the trials of many kinds that he allows us to go through, the cross, the pain, the crucifixion of the self-nature, that self-orientation that sin produced at the fall. So they both have dreams. Joseph interprets the dream. The baker's going to die in three days. The cupbearer's going to be restored in three days. Then he looks at the cupbearer and he says, hey, hey, when you get there, remember me. Tell them I was falsely sent here. Get me out of this thing. What's he doing? He's trying to, this cross, this was a mistake. This whole thing's not supposed to happen. You say, ooh, that's a hard word, Jordan. So was the cross of Calvary. It was a hard word. Why do you think Jesus himself saying, is there any other way? Is there any other way? So Joseph's like, come on, get me out of here. Then it says the cupbearer got there and strangely just forgot. Right? What, we, what we try to do in self-ambition, self-promotion, just has a strange way of fading out of people's minds. Your legacy will not be produced by your own self-efforts. It will be birthed by the power of the old rugged cross. So Joseph sits there for two more years. It says in Psalm 105, if you were to read it in the Young's literal translation, it says his, his, the, how your Bible would read would something be like his soul was put in fetters. But Young's literal says iron hath entered his soul. Which I think you could interpret in two ways that could be true. One is that there was a death that took place. I think that's very true. Something died within Joseph. As he sat there. You said the stars. It could also be interpreted that he was strengthened. And I believe that's also true. And then the day comes that Pharaoh dreams a dream. This was the most wealthy, powerful man on planet earth at this time. It says that the cupbearer remembers because it was Joseph's time. And quickly, they went and grabbed Joseph, shaved him, and they threw him in front of Pharaoh. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard is a great church philosopher. He talks about that, he, I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically had this whole analogy that you know, people would say that they're sanctified and that they love God and they do all these things. He said, but it's like saying that there's no rats in the basement but you open the door first, bang all your pots, and then open the lights. Say, look, it's clean. Said, if you really want to find out what's, what's inside of somebody, you have to just sneak in and then turn the lights on. That's how you find out what's really there. Another way of saying that would be crisis reveals character. Joseph, in a moment of crisis, is thrown before Pharaoh, Pharaoh dreams a dream. He can interpret the dream, meaning he is in a powerful position in this moment. If there's ever a time you can kind of puff yourself up and get what you want, it's, it's right now. And uh, Joseph just answers and says, it's not in me. It's not in me. God will give you the answer. What surrender? What selflessness? 
no more of this get me out of here twist. Da, da, da. He's not justifying. He just, it's not in me. That's the power of the cross. It has the power to penetrate and completely obliterate that self, that selfish, self-seeking propensity that was birthed through sin. So we think of sin usually in the church as actions. Don't look at porn. Don't drink. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't have affairs. Don't, don't fornicate. Don't, 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 don't. We, we all know the list. I don't think we need men's refreshing. Maybe some of us do. That'll be next week's class after service. Taught by Pastor Justin. I think what God is more concerned with is not the externals of sin, but he's concerned with the sin nature that was actually created through deception in the garden. We are image bearers in Genesis 2 when we're created in the image of God. The only thing that we know about the image of God is that God was good and God was a creator. Those are the only two things we know. So we can infer with biblical accuracy that what the Genesis account is telling us is that we are creative like God is creative and we are good like God is good. We're image bearers. So the devil comes who is not creative. He doesn't have power to create like God does. And then that God put that exalted expression ability inside of us as humanity. The devil comes and says, lies, eat the fruit. But what he's actually doing is he's trying to pervert this creative nature inside of us that we would turn in rebellion against God and we would actually create through faith in his word, which is fear, we would produce this nature that is actually contrary to God, that wants nothing to do with God, that rebels against God, because it's a nature that says, I am God. Did God really say, is God good? Is he withholding from you? And, and there the rift began because this whole nature of the flesh nature, the self nature, the sin nature, whatever you want to call it, this is what God is more concerned with in the scriptures. This is why often it's even in Paul's writing, he's speaking of sin in a singular sense, not the plural sense of your sins, but it's the sin. And Jesus came to to walk the cross and take the cross upon himself, not so that we wouldn't have to go to the cross. That's a mistake. It's a mistake to think that Jesus was the one on the cross. We're co-crucified with him. When he hung on the cross, we were with him. We were in him. That's part of why faith in his name, it unites us. We get united with him in his death so that we can also be united with him in the resurrection of his life. But the pathway to the resurrection of his life is his death. This is why Paul in Philippians 3 says, I pray, I yearn that I could be united with him. I could know him in the power of his death so that I may know him in the glory of his resurrection. You get no resurrection without death. Why is the cross the pathway to the power of God? Because the cross, it... it 
crucifies this self-flesh orientation inside of us. It actually washes away. It completely exterminates the sin nature. That's its design. So that there can be the release of the spirit nature, the true, the Christ nature, the Christian nature, recreated and reformed in Christ Jesus. The cross. It's the cross. And if we were to ponder the cross a little bit, I think we can, we can even make the cross a form. You know, Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary. Or the cross in my life is the rejections I've been through, or my loneliness, or my singleness, or the pain in my marriage, or the pain in my children, or the financial burdens, right? Like we, if we were to sit down and I say, take a note paper out and say, what is your cross? You'd, you'd, you'd probably all start writing similar things. This addiction that I've been fighting, this insecurity that I felt because I was abandoned in my childhood, whatever it may be, we all have painful circumstances. But I want to warn from just saying that the cross is just those circumstances. Because it's deeper. The cross isn't an external reality. The cross is an internal reality. It's a spiritual reality. It's something inside of us that we want words to articulate. And it is true that all of those circumstances that I named and probably a hundred more they constitute aspects of it. They're, they're, they are in, in indicating, they're what help us to make sense and see what the cross is. But the cross for you and me, it's, it's the same. It's the same as what it was for Jesus. It's when it comes down to the heart of it, the cross takes us right back to the garden and there's the tree of good and evil with fruit that looks really beautiful. And this is where we have it a little harder than Adam and Eve, is that they were in a garden that was also probably more beautiful. But we get back in this juxtaposition of which tree do we choose? Do we want to choose this tree? Or do I want to choose the rugged cross? of Calvary. Bear with me here. The flesh will always appeal to us. It's usually promising instant gratification. It's going to promise. It's going to look easier. It's going to look like what you want. It's going to inflame desire. It's going to make you feel this sense of power and control that you can take and eat. You can satisfy. It's going to, it's going to allure this is why I believe Jesus Christ went to the cross is because we would have never chosen the cross on our own. Because if it was just a cross with three nails waiting for me, I would say I, I don't have faith that that's good. Right? Because sin blinds us. Sin changes our nature so that obeying God doesn't look good. If you don't believe me, just maybe ponder for 20 seconds what you think of tithing. 
or what you think of coming to church every week or what you think of all the things that we know God says this is good. Well, that doesn't feel good. That feels out of control. It is out of control. It's very out of control, right? When we live with a mercy seat that's clear where whatever whisper comes into my inner being, I have to follow. What are you going to say? So sin blinds me. I couldn't see. I wouldn't be able to see the cross as good. I wouldn't be able to trust God to walk and to embrace something like that. So why did Jesus come? Jesus hung on the cross so that when I look at my cross, it's not an empty cross. For I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've always read that, that Paul would just only preach the crucifixion of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when I was among you, Greeks and Jews, you were mocking me, saying that my message was foolishness, and you were persecuting me. That's the context of what he's saying, because Jews want signs, and Greeks want wisdom. And Paul is going city to city, knowing that persecution awaits him, knowing that he'll be rejected, knowing he may be stoned, he may be all of these things. And what Paul's saying is, he's not just saying, I only preach Christ crucified. He says, I was among you as he's bearing his cross. But he's saying, I, I knew only Christ and him crucified. He's actually talking about something deeper than his preaching. He's talking about the internal knowing. He's articulating, I was embracing my cross because in embracing my cross, it was bringing me closer to the crucified one, Jesus. What can empower us to embrace the cross? What, what can empower you and I to be like Joseph that could walk that long haul and press on and press in to the upward call of God and actually acquire that for which God acquired, chose, took hold of us for? What could grip us in such a way that we would have the conviction inside of us to persevere through many trials, to say no to the many temptations, to live in a way that would perhaps be despised and even mocked by contemporaries, some of them maybe even Christian contemporaries. What could empower that? That we would know the cross of Jesus Christ and the crucified one. That we would see through all of these light momentary afflictions to see him beckoning you to join him at Calvary. There is a union with God that will only ever be known in suffering. It's suffering love. All the saints, without, without exception, they've known suffering because they embraced their cross. It was the cross that made them saints. It's the cross that sanctifies us. But the cross is not cold, sterile, dark, isolated, abandoned. It's not those things. 
It's very intimate with Jesus. It's very painful, but it's very intimate. And we'll never escape it. We'll never escape it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. It goes on. We have earthly fathers who disciplined us according to how they see fit. But God disciplines us for our good. Purity is not a pipe dream. Holiness is not reserved for the afterlife. If it is, that means death is our savior, not Jesus Christ. Holiness is the inheritance of the beloved of God. Holiness is the portion of those who have been co-crucified with Christ. Holiness, the sanctification that comes by the power of God is the Christian power, which is the secret. That's, that, that's what will change the world. If Christianity has no power, then we're wasting our time with it. Like we, we almost feel, I, I found in me this over the years, this mixed relationship with the power of God, and that I didn't quite feel that I could ask for it because it felt selfish, and that was because Perhaps the power of God was in some ways aligned with what the power of the world looks like. But when we see 
that when I ask for the power of God, I'm asking for the cross. It liberates me to ask with great faith that God will answer that prayer and he will give me the power for which my heart is longing because that power is not used in a way to prop up or build a throne for any man. It is used to transform the human being from the brokenness of sin into the glory of God. This is the glory of God that man would be fully alive, redeemed, restored, holy like he is holy. This is God's dream that we would all know him, that we wouldn't have to teach one another, know the Lord, but we would all know him because we had yielded and allowed the spirit of God to actually reform and redeem and resurrect Jesus Christ in our own bodies. That is the promise of Christianity. That's the power of God to you and I. But it's the cross. It's the cross. So the question I'd leave you with tonight is will you embrace the cross? And not just embrace it, learn to love the cross. I believe God wants to so transform us that the cross no longer becomes painful because we actually learn to enjoy the cross because we just, it's fixing our eyes more and more on him. It's like the more that we've walked through, the more we learn to love it, embrace it, cling to it. Will you love the cross? Will you embrace the cross? Will you stop complaining about the cross and just let it do what it's supposed to do? Let it crucify you because it will lead you to resurrection life. Christians will tell me, and I will experience sometimes, I have no power in my life. Then you have not yet been crucified with Christ. You have in your positional theology, positionally you have, but you've not yielded to the point that that's become experiential theology. You've actually kicked against the goads of what is the glory and glorious inheritance he has for you but you're kicking against it and you're failing to receive it because it doesn't look good. If you want God to redeem your image of the cross, just meditate upon the crucified one and let him bring you to a place where your own eyes will open. If we'll endure the cross, the cross will be the power of God to us and it will empower whatever form our Christianity takes on it will empower it, right? We worship, the act of worship. For some people, worship is extremely powerful and they believe in it and they'll preach it. True, but it's only true if you first embrace the cross because worship is the expression of self-giving love. So if you're just doing the form of worship without the cross, it's just an empty form. Prayer is communion with God, but we will never be able to pray in the name of Jesus if the flesh nature hasn't been crucified by the cross. We'll pervert our prayers to always twist back and orient with strings attached to myself. There will be no power in prayer until we've embraced the cross. The cross is the seat of power for prayer. Evangelism, whatever it may be, healing ministry, Songwrite, whatever the form is, if it's not being sourced 
from this union that's found at the cross, then it's going to come back to self. And what comes to back to self is idolatrous, and it will not be anointed with the spirit of grace and the spirit of glory. It's the cross that liberates us so that the old man can truly be put in the grave, and then God can have his way and his intense pleasure in his people. He can lavish us with the fullness of his glory because it will no longer be manipulated and perverted. The cross. Praise God for the cross. The cross. Maybe we can end, Becca or somebody, do you want to, we can, we can sing, cling to the old rugged cross. Um, And I just want to sing this together. And I just believe the spirit of God wants to, is doing something. These aren't just words. This is transformative power. And I just have a sense that even as we'd sing this, that for some of us tonight, it would be like that story I shared, where if we've, if we've walked past the cross, let's come back to the cross and let the cross be the door that opens. We sang it tonight, open up the door to your presence, God. Let's let the cross be the door, the daily door that, that opens and leads us into the heart of God. I think they're coming. You can stand on your feet. If you have young kids, we want to honor our workers. So maybe in five minutes or so, you could go get your kids. Um, you're, you're welcome to, to slip out quietly if you want to slip out. Um, but maybe we can just dim the lights. And if you want to come to the altar, if that's in your heart, you can come to the altar. But my prayer, my heart, is that you'd just, you'd come and cling to the cross tonight. And that as we cling to the cross, the Lord would open our eyes to see the cross. That, Father, you would give us a revelation of the cross tonight that we would be Christians who cling to our crosses and that your cross, God, would be to us here the power of God, the power to transform, God, the power to crucify, the power to liberate and and, and inspire true devotion, true love, true offering of ourself to you and offering of ourself to the world and to each other. Lord, that your cross would be etched into our hearts, Lord. It would be written upon our spirit, Lord. It would be tattooed like a seal of love on our hearts, Lord, as we see you.
but just ask him for the cross. Ask him for the cross. God, we plead. We plead, God, we thank you. We ask for a revelation of the cross. We just say, yes, God, yes, yes. I just, there's a moment of surrender in hearts right now that it's, it's not just a song, but it's a yearning of your heart. It's like God's giving you a blank contract. Just sign your name, sign your life. Yes, God. It's a yes, God. Yes, God. Find yes, God, here. Find a, find a, a wholehearted yes, God, at the cross. At the cross. We say yes, God, in light of the one who gave everything. We just say yes, God. Yes. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes. Just confess, confess the areas to him where your desires are other. Confess, open up and let the light in where the addictions, where the desires, where the lust, where the selfishness, the greed, the envy, the comparison, the bitterness, the competition, the empire building, the self-absorption, just confess, don't hide it, he sees, just confess, 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 and cling to the cross. Come Holy Spirit, sanctifying spirit. Just confess, you're tired of kicking against the goads. I'm turning tonight, I'm turning tonight. There's an altar moment. This is an altar moment for some of you. I feel like you really should come and put your life on the altar. It's an altar moment. It's an altar moment. This is an altar moment respond. Come and, and put yourself as a sacrifice on the altar of God. If you're on the prayer team, you see people coming forward. I want you to just maybe just lay hands and 
and partner and let God use you to, to minister. It was an altar moment. I was 17 years old. The Lord met me one night. I saw my life consumed with self. I saw it. I saw everything in my life. It was all about me. It was so hideous. I started screaming at the top of my lungs. I said, God, save me. Save me. Save me. Save me. And I just started screaming. I surrender. I surrender, God. I surrender. I surrender. And in my head, I did not know what was going on. I was resisting it. I said, stop saying that. Stop saying that. But something deeper in me, just, I surrender, God. I surrender, God. I surrender, God. I just screamed it again and again. And it was, it was not emotion. It was spiritual. It was the deepest part of me saying yes to the cross, saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to his lordship, saying yes to his will. That moment changed everything about my life. This is an altar moment. I know I see it. It's just a handful of people in this room tonight. There's an altar moment. It's not emotion. It's spiritual. It's not in your soul. It's your spirit. Because your spirit longs. Your spirit already sees. Your spirit already knows it longs for him. It longs to be close to him. It longs, it longs, it longs, it longs for the cross. Just give it space. Give your innermost being.